of you who uh, were trickling in as the songs were going, good morning for the first time to you as well. We were just trying out the newest member of our group, and I think you've uh, passed the audition successfully, so we'll, we'll welcome Judah Haskins up. <laughs> the word of the Lord is going to come to us today from Hebrews. This will be the end of chapter 4, so Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. This is God's word for God's people. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we have just sang our prayers to you. How great is our God. And so we pray today that as your word is opened, as your word is spoken, as your word is heard, that this is what our hearts would proclaim. We wouldn't harden our hearts to you, but we would open them to say, God is great. God is great. And God is greater than all things in this world that the world can offer. That there's nothing on earth we desire besides you. Lord, I pray this for all of us. We pray this in the name of our beautiful King Jesus. Amen. An addition from Logan. <laughs> there was once a time when man walked with God in a garden with no barriers between them. There was a time when man conversed with God and whom man whom God had formed out of the dust and breathed life into. There was a time when there was no sin, a time when there was perfect relationship between God and man, and when man was living as he was created to be, steward of the garden, master of the natural world that God had placed under him, and an undefiled worshiper of God. There was a time when there was no lies, when there was no death, when there was no pain, no suffering, and no hate. A time when humanity didn't need to fear nature, didn't need to fear other people. A time when we didn't need to be afraid of God's wrath. And in our hearts, we, we desperately yearn for this. We see this in, in the way that people behave, in the way that, the things that they pursue, this instinctive yearning for what was lost. We want to converse with God. We want to walk with God. We want to hear God's voice speak to us audibly. You know, the popularity of, uh, uh, and this spiritually instinctive drive throughout the ages for mystical experiences and phenomena and sensation is, is nothing less than an expression of the human heart's yearning for what was lost in the fall. Adam had an unbroken and sinless relationship with his creator, but it wasn't enough for him. He fell into sin because he wanted to be more than a creature. He wanted to be in God's place. So when he sinned, and God cast him out of the garden. Genesis 3 says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Now imagine, and this is a good exercise to do whenever you're studying any book of the Bible, but the Bible in general, imagine that you've never read it before, you've never read scripture, you didn't grow up in Sunday school, you've never heard its message, you're a blank slate and you don't know how the story ends, but you've picked up a Bible and you've read up until this point in Genesis 3. You've learned about the fall of man and the expulsion of man from the garden. So what questions would you be asking right now if you'd gotten this far in Scripture and no further? How could they do it? Why didn't God kill them? Where will they go now? What will happen to them? And most importantly, will they ever be able to reach God again? And we may not ask these questions now, maybe because we already know the story, or we don't often pause and meditate on what the Bible has taught its readers up to this point in the narrative, but they're important questions to ask, especially that last one. For whatever reasons, either culturally reasons, cultural influence, over-familiarity with the story, extreme arrogance, or something else, we don't often stop and consider this last question. But we have to consider it now. How can sinful, judged, cursed humanity ever approach the holy and righteous God who said, on the day you eat the fruit, you shall surely die? God who was defied and rebelled against. A death sentence was passed. And how in the world do we think we can approach or come near to the one who passed the sentence? And imagine that uh, uh, you broke into a judge's house you stole everything from the safe, you shot his dog, you murdered the butler, you stole the classic car from the garage, and you left your fingerprints and your wallet at the scene, along with being recorded on the cameras. He knows it was you. You get tried in absentia and sentenced to death. You are guilty, you're convicted, and when the police get a hold of you, the sentence is going to be carried out. And now imagine that after all of this, you need some gas money, and so you go to the front door of your old pal, the judge, and knock. How's that going to end? No sane person would consider that. But our crimes are greater against God. He is not some sinful human judge. He is the Lord God omnipotent who has been defied by the creature of the dirt into whom he breathed life and put in the Garden of Eden. He is just and he is holy and he hates sin, and his judgment is more perfect and more terrible than any human judge could condemn us to. How can man approach God again after the fall? We do really need to stop and consider on what grounds we think we're able to approach the God who told us not to eat of the fruit, because on that day we will surely die. We ate the fruit. The human race was plunged into sin and rebellion, and the world looks like it does because it's a world under the curse and permeated with sin. It, does it seem strange to you that the world looks exactly like it should look if everything the Bible says is true? And how do we reach God in the midst of all of this, of everything going on? How do we cross the, the chasm that separates us from God? And that's really the question man has been trying to answer since the fall. It's the goal of every religion, even if it's not asked in that same way. How do we get back to God? How do we experience God again? The other religions are seeking after false gods, but their spiritual instincts for, for this are spurred by their descent from the garden. They can sense that there's a separation and an alienation between man and deity. And when there's a, a conflict 
between nations, between two countries, a third nation is often brought in to mediate an agreement or a peace between conflicting parties. The warring factions aren't exactly on speaking terms, so they need a third party. They need a mediator. And this mediator uh, is needed in many areas of conflict, not just on the international level. People that are going through um, very uh, hateful divorces, often they need to they, they talk through their middleman. They won't speak to each other. And when it comes to our approaching the deity, it also stands to reason that a mediator is needed, an intercessor, someone who can represent both parties to each other, someone who can communicate on behalf of man and deity. And in many religions, this is called a priest. In addition to these questions of, of approaching God that are part of every religious endeavor, it's also part of nearly every religion that there's a, a priest, a guru, a shaman, a mullah, a brahmin, or or some other special religious figure who acts as this intermediary between man and deity. You, you travel throughout the world, or you read about religion and anthropology, and you're going to discover that various religions see this need to come near to deity, but they also see the need for someone to intercede with the deity on their behalf. So kind of bringing it into our own context, Hebrews 5.1, which would be the part of the next passage um, next time I'm up here, Hebrews 5.1 gives a brief description of what the Jewish priests performed in their duties. It says, Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of man in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the text says that the people of God needed a high priest who would act on behalf of man before God. This priest offered animal sacrifices, that is, killed animals and spilled blood, to atone for the sin of the people. And this needed to be done regularly. It was done every year. Again, living in 21st century, increasingly secular West, this may seem like an archaic or an irrelevant concept for us. Yet, if we read God's Word, the Bible, we see that even us, today, Christians, called to a new hope in Jesus Christ, still need a priest. But who could this be? Who indeed... This is the question that the original book of Hebrews, the, the readers of the book of Hebrews would have, be facing as they attempted to follow Christ in a culture that was becoming increasingly hostile to them in their faith. They had been practicing Jews, and then they heard the wonderful news that the Messiah, who had been promised to the Jewish nation, had come. The anointed one of God, who came to take away their sin, and they believed and they followed Jesus Christ. But not all of the Jewish people believed and accepted Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And we see that clearly in the New Testament. Some denied Christ himself and had him killed. And some denied Christ and had his followers persecuted and killed and scattered. Very soon, the unbelieving Jews were making life hard for the believing Jews and refusing to allow them to worship in the synagogues. And soon they were pointing out that Christian Jews they had no temple. They had no sacrifice. They had no priest. Uh, one commentator said, the unbelieving Jews would be apt to say to their Christian brethren, your new religion is deficient in the very first requisite of a religion. You have no priest. How are your sins pardoned when you have none to offer expiatory oblations for you? You can tell it was a long time ago. <laughs> How are your wants supplied when you have none to make intercession for you to God? It's a just question. In other words... 
it would have been pointed out that the fundamental necessity of having a priest in order to approach God would have been lacking in Christianity. And if there was no priest, there's no one to intercede with God on their behalf or offer sacrifices for their sin. And if there was no one to intercede or offer sacrifices, then the Christians would be guilty of their sin and have no way to atone. That's a big problem. It's a just objection and a real problem. So what does the author of Hebrews say? We have a great high priest. Look, look at verse 14 of our passage. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The response to the critical unbelievers would be, we do have a high priest, a great high priest. And this fact is important. And I hope you've come to understand after uh, what we've been talking about with the fall and the separation from God, um, how important it is that we have this, this priest. Um, because the question is, who goes to God on your behalf? Because it isn't you. And I don't know how you feel about that, whether it humbles you or it irritates your ego, but the Bible is quite clear. You are not your own priest. You are a sinner who on your own has no grounds to stand before a holy God. So who intercedes with God on your behalf? And this is a crucial topic, a very crucial topic, and it's weighty. It's a weighty and detailed topic, and it's so big that it makes up the biggest section in the book of Hebrews. In our last few messages from Hebrews, uh, we covered the importance of having believing, saving, uh, persevering faith in God's promises And that section ran over most of two chapters. This topic on a great high priest starts here in 4.14, and it's going to go all the way to the end of chapter 10. That's just the major big bulk of the Hebrews is talking about you have a priest in Jesus Christ, and this is what he does. The author has that much to say about it. Why am I emphasizing that? Well, again, in our current context, in our theological milieu, we don't really see the big deal with a priest. Well, that's nice. It's a nice title that Jesus has. But no, you need a priest. If you don't have a priest, you are separated from God. No one can offer sacrifices for your sin. No one can intercede for your God. You understand what that means? No priest, no salvation. You have to have a priest. Okay, the Jews had priests, but now they moved to Christianity. They don't have the Jewish priests anymore. What do they do now? Well, they have to have something better. And that's the point of these chapters which are coming up. These three verses which make up our passage this morning, are a transition into the subject of Christ's priesthood from the topics that came before. And they're an introduction to this big section that follows. And they're also incredibly encouraging and edifying on their own. Um, I just find so much, of the, so much of Scripture is so rich and so edifying, even the little bits, that I like to stop with three, three verses here and just show how much God has to say about it instead of just trying to go through two chapters in this 30,000-foot overview. Because in, this, in these three verses, we're told that we do, in fact, have a, a priest. We have a great high priest. And it acknowledges that we need a priest. It's not saying that we don't need a priest. It acknowledges, yes, you do need a priest. And to, to underline how important that is for us, we should say, how much does the Holy Spirit have to tell us about our priest Six chapters, that should tell us how how important this subject should be to us, where God spends this much time discussing the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. It acknowledges that we need a priest, and it says that we have one, the one, the only one we need. And 
being named with his human name for the first time in the book of Hebrews, we see that it is Jesus who is our priest. When it says in, uh, in verse 14, Jesus, the Son of God, that's the first time that Jesus is used by his, by his, his, his Christian name. <laughs> first time he's used by his, his human name. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is our King. Jesus is our God. And Jesus is our great high priest. Again, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Since, since we do, do in fact not only have a high priest, but a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is the very Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. A confession refers to the faith uh, followers of Christ have embraced that they proclaims and promise to uphold. And the author is saying, hold fast to your faith. Hold fast to the gospel that you heard and were changed by. Don't give up and go back to the old ways. Don't go back to a priesthood that is made up of mortal, sinful men who themselves need saving. And the author will expand on the subject of human priests in the following chapters, but just here in verse 14, look at what he's saying. Jesus isn't just an ordinary priest. Hebrews 7, 23 to 24 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, being Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The old priests were mortal men. They died and they had to be replaced. The passage that I just read says there had to be many priests because they, were, they kept dying and they, and they needed to have more priests replace them. But Jesus will continue forever. He will never cease from his office of high priest, and he will never need to be replaced. We rightly spend a great deal of focus and thought on Jesus' earthly ministry, on his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, but I feel so often in American theology or preaching, we don't emphasize enough the work that Christ is doing now. He didn't just float up there and he's sitting on a chaise long while he's waiting for the, the, the second coming. He is actively working. He is our priest performing priestly duties now, at this moment, for us. He lives to make intercession for us. And he will continue in this role forever. It will never end. He will always be our priest. The old priests were fallible, sinful men living under the curse like you and me. Jesus is the Son of God. He is one with the Father who now sits at the right hand of the Father and who wields all authority in heaven on earth. And since these things are true, since these things are true, hold fast to your faith. Hold fast to the gospel. Don't think that you can get a better deal from some other religion or other priest. Our priest is the Lord Jesus Christ for whom and by whom all things were created. And what can be better than that? I think I've got the high priest who continues forever, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who will continue forever, and all things were created through him and for him. Or this guy on the internet who says he's the Messiah. No, no. That's not a good comparison. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, having understood who Jesus Christ is as Lord and King, as the radiance of the glory of God, 
someone might raise the objection that this Jesus must be beyond, our, be beyond our reach. And maybe some of you feel that way, maybe if worded differently. God doesn't pay attention to you and, and your problems. Uh, you, whatever it is, you ha just have your daily pains and sufferings and you think, does God really care about little old me? There's over seven billion people in the world and so many bigger things going on. Does he care? Is he aware of what I'm going? Sure, he cares about me, but does he care about me like I care about a bolt in my engine of my car where it's a necessary part, but it's not really the main thing? Since he is God incarnate who governs the universe with absolute sovereignty, how can he be present with us? And how can he truly have any concern for us? Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you know how big the universe is? Nobody does. It's unfathomably huge. The nearest star to us, apart from the sun, is Proxima Centauri. If you drove a car there at 60 miles an hour, it would take you 48 million years to get there. Just think about any bathroom stops you'd have to make with your toddler. <laughs> My son gets car sick going to Maristone Island. Like, but we'd have to stretch that out to 60 million years. The universe is enormous, and King Jesus rules over all of it. Do you see the news, all of the things going on right now? It seems like things are spiraling out of control or advancing so fast it makes your head spin. Technological advances, scientific discoveries, the changing of seasons, crops growing, children being born, wars being fought, mountains growing, mountains wearing down, and King Jesus rules over all of it. With all of the things going on in the universe, with Jesus being the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, the one who upholds this universe by the word of his power, do you sometimes think that he has big things on his mind and can't come near to you? Does, that he doesn't have space in his attention for you? you know, not too long ago, Prince Harry published a memoir. Um, some comedians said it should be titled Wah, but it was called Spare. <laughs> but in that book, he was sharing his experiences about growing up in the British royal family. And in the book, he shared quite a bit about the struggles he's faced as a prince. I know Suzette wants to read it. <laughs> in the book, uh, you know, he received a lot of criticism for that book from people who thought that a prince, somebody who was born into such privilege in our world, has no right to complain about anything. And some critics would say, you're a prince. Your dad's a billionaire head of state. You've had anything you've wanted and every advantage that can be given to a human being what do you know about life? You know, I don't think that criticism was exactly fair because losing your mom in a car accident is tragic and emotionally scarring at any age, no matter how rich you are. But I think that some of us can feel a similar resentment against the Lord Jesus, even if we don't want to admit it. He's the sovereign king of the universe. What does he know about real life? He can, how can he sympathize with us even if you were aware of our problems? Um, if somebody comes up to you and they, they, they share that they're going through something, and if you're uh, mostly Scandinavian like me, you're like, oh, that's too bad. But uh, I can't really feel what they're feeling. I can acknowledge this person is suffering, but I can't step into their, their, their uh, experience and, and know exactly what it's like. Sometimes we feel that God's like that. Yes, he knows everything, but does he know everything just by because it's a true proposition, or does, or does he know it differently? And if it's just a proposition, what does he know about real life? He's the sovereign king of the universe. How can he sympathize with us, even if he were aware? 
But what's the text say here? He is not unable to sympathize with us. Sorry, grammarians, for the double negative, but that's what the Bible says. He is not unable to sympathize with us. He was made like us in every respect so that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest. He was tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ cares about you in your little world. He cared enough about it to enter into our experience and become like us in every respect. He was and he is truly human. And he suffered the things we suffer. He experienced hunger and thirst and weariness and sorrow and pain and longing and loneliness, rejection, torture, and injustice and death. We sometimes, we really need to get this math right here. Jesus God wasn't born in Bethlehem. God entered humanity at Bethlehem. He existed previously. He didn't have to come. He entered into our experience. He didn't just become God at birth. This is a God who existed from eternity, who entered in to experience what we experience. Why would he do that? He knows what you're going through, not just because he's, as God, he knows everything and has the theoretical knowledge of our sorrows, but because he went through trials personally and knows our sorrows by experience. God knows what pain and suffering is like experientially. He felt it. He knows what sorrow is through having experienced it. God knows what loneliness and rejection feels like because his friends, his family, his spiritual leaders, his nation, and his people rejected him. The people that read the scriptures looking for the Messiah said, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. God knows what you're going through because he actually loved us enough and cared enough about us to enter into this world as one of us and live and toil and suffer and die as a human being. Does the Lord of the universe think about you at all? Does God know? Does God care? Whenever you need to ask that question, look at a cross and think about what that means. It means he's not a distant God. It means he's not unsympathetic. He's not unsympathetic, merely mortal priest. He is one who became like us in every respect and was tempted as we are tempted, yet never sinned. I've heard some people say that Christ can't really know what temptation is like or how hard it is because he never gave in to temptation. You've heard of the old uh, theological debate, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Another one is how can, it says God can't be tempted, how can God be tempted? And if God can't be tempted, why does, how is Jesus' temptation real? Well, he never gave in to temptation, but we know that that's all a silly idea, don't we? Which is harder, to resist sin or to give in to sin? It's harder to resist, is, is it harder to resist sexual immorality, drunkenness, anger, hate, slander, gossip, or to give in to it? When you're being tempted to, uh, to lose control and start yelling at somebody, which is easier, to not do that or to let go? Which is easier? To click the mouse or to not click the mouse? To have that extra drink and the waiter says, do you want another one? Or to say, no, I've had enough. You know the answer because all of us have failed when we were tempted to sin. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We have all yielded to sin at various times and in various ways. But Jesus never did. So he's the only one who knows how hard it is to actually resist sin fully. C.S. Lewis said this, a silly idea is current. He wrote it during World War II, so keep that in mind. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So rather than saying that Jesus doesn't really know what it's like to be human because he never gave in to sin and temptation, we should say the opposite. We don't know what it means to be fully human because we've never resisted to the end. God didn't make you to sin. We've always given in to sub-human behavior, behavior that because it's sinful and against God's natural design for us is beneath us as image bearers. We're the ones who don't know what true humanity is because not one of us has ever lived up to what we were created to be, sinless lovers of God. Remember when it said in the beginning what Adam was supposed to be, the undefiled worshiper of God. That's what we were supposed to be. But we're the, we're, we've been tarnished. Does Jesus know how hard your life is? Yes. In fact, he knows it better than you do. And he cares. And the text says that our great high priest sympathizes with us. Do we apprehend this? The Son of God took on human flesh and became like us in every way so that he would become our merciful and faithful high priest. Let's look back at a passage from a previous message, Hebrews 2, beginning in 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This isn't a removed God who is too busy elsewhere. This isn't a God who has better things to do. This is a God who not only provided the great high priest but who is the great high priest who entered into our humanity in order to save us. So then, the author of Hebrews continues in 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is a throne? It's a seat of authority, of power, of sovereignty. Who is on the throne? King Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. All authority. 
He rules. He reigns. The throne is where the royal sovereign sits to preside over his kingdom. It's where he makes decrees, where he issues orders, where he passes judgments. Given that we're guilty criminals, is that some place we want to go? In one sense, no. The Lord Jesus said in John 3.19 and following, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, in one sense, guilty criminals do not want to come near to the throne. They're like the criminal from our judge illustration earlier. They know what's going to happen if they go there as, as it stands. But what if the guilty criminal was pardoned? What if the criminal who broke into the judge's house and committed those crimes from our illustration earlier had the judge come to his door and tell him, you've been declared righteous. There's no longer any condemnation for you because someone else has paid your debt. For those who've been pardoned by their sin, by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, by his becoming a human being and making propitiation for our sin on the cross, we do approach the throne. We approach not the throne of judgment, but the throne of grace. And we do it with confidence, not with terror that God will see our sin and punish us, but with confidence that our debt has been paid. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. At the beginning of this message, we asked the question, how can man approach God after the fall? And the answer, we couldn't. So God approached us. God sent his only son to become human and suffer pain, humiliation, and death so that those who are guilty would repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus Christ and in his promises and be saved from God's wrath, which is coming. Let me quote lyrics from a song called Where Would We Be? It says, You came to search and rescue. In love, the Father sent you, broke through the darkest night. You came to seek and save us. You came to liberate us. Jesus, you heard our cry. You made a way to save us. You are the light of this world. Jesus, our rescuer, we live our lives to thank you. How could we not adore you? We're safe in the arms of your embrace. We couldn't escape the sin and the shame that kept us bound. We couldn't break through. We couldn't reach you. So you reached down. We couldn't reach God. So God came to seek and save his lost sheep. And because we needed a better priest than sinful men who died and needed to be replaced, God gave his only son to become our priest and our mediator. Jesus came, our shepherd came, he came for us, he came to rescue us. He entered into our humanity. Tim Keller, in his uh, book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, you know, he was answering these questions that people ask, you know, where is God in our suffering? Where is God in our pain? Does God care? Like, God cares. Of course God cares. God entered into it. He, he didn't remain aloof from it. He came into our suffering and he experienced the worst that humanity can inflict upon another human. We can say a lot of things, we can argue about a lot of things, but we cannot say that God doesn't care. And now, we approach God with confidence, and we know that he cares, and that from his throne of grace, 
we will receive mercy and find grace in time of need, which, at least for me, is every single day. We know that God's mercies are new every morning. We know that God gives us our daily bread. And we know that God does care, and he helps those who call on him. So call on him. Our passage again, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you've given us a great word today, a great encouragement. And how can we do anything else but praise you and worship you for it? How can we do anything else but lift our hands to praise you, Lord, and thank you that if we are in Christ, we are no longer criminals, but we've been declared righteous. That you took our legal debt and you nailed it to a cross. That we can look upon your throne of grace without fear because there's no longer any condemnation for us. Let us live like that, Lord. Let us live like people who are free. Let us live like people who know their Savior, represent him, and share him with this community who also need this pardon. We do this in the name of King Jesus. Amen.